0: Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At a Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with the space entrepreneur, author, and speaker, Jane Pointer. She's the co-founder and co-CEO of the human spaceflight company, Space Perspective, which is focused on shifting people's view and perception of Earth.
1: In the early 90s, Jane was a member of the first crew on a two-year mission inside Biosphere 2, the world's first human-made biosphere and prototype space base, where she led the design of the agriculture systems. She later co-founded and was president of Paragon Space Development, which today has technologies on nearly every human spacecraft in operation in the United States.
0: Before we get into the episode, we'd first like to thank our sponsor, the Japanese luxury timepiece manufacturer, Grand Seiko, which brings an incredible level of craft and detail to every watch it makes. A great example of this is the new SBGK017, a U.S. special edition from their Elegance collection that's shipping this fall, taking its inspiration from Nanbuteki Ironware, a form of traditional metalworking produced in the city of Morioka in Japan's Iwate Prefecture. The watch is a proud embodiment of the craft of the company's hometown. The area is home to Grand Seiko Shizuku Ishi Watch Studio, where the company produces its mechanical watches and
1: other high-end timepieces. Dating back to Japan's Edo period and prized for its beauty and durability, the handcraft tradition of Nanbuteki continues to this day. The ironware features a distinctive texture called arare or hailstone on its exterior. It's a texture that finds its way onto the dark gray dial of the SBGK017. Rendered in stainless steel, the case is polished by a special Zaratsu method created to accentuate the beauty of the case's curved surfaces. The dial and sapphire crystal are also curved, giving the watch a classic look and feel.
0: Find out more about the SBGK 017 or Grand Seiko's other distinctive timepieces, head to www.grand-seiko.com. And now, our conversation with Jane Pointer. Hi, Jane. Welcome to At a Distance. It's so great to have you with us today.
2: Well, hello, hello. How fantastic to be with you.
0: So I guess where we'd want to start is that it seems that space has always been about speed, like rockets for lift, speed to accomplish mission goals. But you guys have taken this very slow approach in many ways, the way you're thinking about flight time to orbit, process of growth with the company. So I'd love to just start with the idea of slow, human speed, how you think about that and how that plays into your approach to your company.
2: Oh, there's so much to unpack there, right? So maybe we start out by just describing what it is physically we're doing so people have a sense of that, right? Because I think we are used to thinking about rocket flight as as just... That, right? It's the only way to space is using a rocket with high Gs, with a spacesuit. It's uncomfortable, maybe exhilarating, but not necessarily for everyone. And so we wanted to find a way to really make space accessible to as many people as possible. So we've completely reimagined it, first of all. And so the first thing is to make it physically accessible. And so we use an enormous space balloon that is the size of a football stadium to lift a very comfortable capsule for eight people and a pilot to space. You're going to space at 12 miles an hour. And what that allows is this incredibly gentle flight. So it's a completely seamless experience front to back. It also allows us frankly to have a bar on board and a loo and everything else that goes along with it, right? So, we've completely reimagined what the interior experience of a capsule is. It's not that white, austere, utilitarian approach to space. It's a space lounge because people want to go with their families, their friends, their loved ones to have this as a shared experience of going to space. So, we created a space lounge to make it really accessible and really inviting for people. So that gives you a sense of sort of how we reimagined it. And this is all around the notion of giving people the quintessential astronaut experience, which is that of seeing our planet in the context of space.
0: So the mission you've been very clear about and the vision of it, I'd like to know a bit more about. Like where is it gonna go kind of moving forward? This is step one.
2: Yeah, the very first thing that we're doing is really throwing open the doors to space to a lot of people. And when you talk to astronauts about their experience of going to space, they will all talk about this incredibly moving, and for many of them, life-transforming experience of seeing our planet in space. That's the namesake of our company, right? space perspective.
0: The overview effect.
2: Yes, exactly. It gives you this incredibly unique vantage point to really viscerally grasp the idea and the fact that we are a singular human family, all inhabiting spaceship Earth together. Hurtling through this desert, essentially no life, and in fact, inhospitable to life, this place that we call space. And and it actually means that when you look at what happens with astronauts when they go to space, when they return, they get more involved in social and environmental causes when they come back to Earth compared to before they went. So not only does it actually give you this unique perspective, helps you change the way you think about the planet, also gives you an urgent need to do something about that. And I can talk about that from personal experience. Not that I have yet been to space, but Taylor McCallum, my co-founder and I were involved in a project uh, back in the early nineties called Biosphere 2, where the both of us along with six others were enclosed in a three acre environment that was entirely sealed. It was actually sealed tighter than the International Space Station. And it was really a, a prototype space base But it was our first attempt as a species to create the world's first human-made biosphere. And so we were in there for two years. And it gave us this incredibly visceral experience of being part of our biosphere. When I went in to Biosphere 2, I went in because I thought it was the closest thing I was ever going to get to going to Mars. And after having this experience of being embedded in my biosphere, drinking the same water over and over again, knowing that the plants around me were providing my oxygen and I was providing them the CO2. We could see the edges of our world. This really created for us an incredible view of our world. We suddenly got that we are living on a planetary biosphere out here, right? In a very visceral way. And that really set us off on this path to taking everybody to go to space, to have what astronauts talk about. And it's that experience that it is an incredibly visceral experience, and I can say has given us sort of an urgent need to want to do something with that experience and let other people have it as well.
0: Before Steve Bannon got involved.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so I did meet Steve a couple of times. He was at the time a different man, actually, because I had met him a couple of times and He was actually in charge of Biosphere 2 for a short period of time.
0: Yeah. Little known fact, right? He tried to clean up the business.
2: Little known fact. And at the time, you know, we were working with Columbia University on climate change at the time. He was totally all in on climate change at the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's fascinating that people don't think about that. But I mean, he came in to sort of save the project, right? From a financial perspective or structural, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, in a managerial perspective, right, exactly. That's exactly right. So I didn't really know him particularly well. So what I think is so interesting, Bannon aside, I think that projects like Biosphere 2, projects like, you know, what we're doing at Space Perspective, you know, the flight writ large, I mean, it inspires so many people. I mean, it, it really does. I mean, it opens up our minds to the possibilities of what humanity can accomplish together.
0: And that's the sort of exponential impact that could happen by sending so many people, private citizens, policymakers, executives, people with means and ambition up there might really shift things. So there are a number of companies developing space tours and platforms, right? You've got the the three guys we all know, you've got some other balloon projects out there. How are you thinking about yours sort of differently? What is unique to the way you guys have approached it?
2: You know, first of all, the experience is completely different from really anybody else. So we talked a little bit about that compared to rockets. You know, the safety component of this vehicle, the safety factor is so much higher on this than anything else actually anything else out there you know we've looked really hard at a lot of these balloon ways of doing it and what's different with ours compared to anybody else out there who's doing this is that we have chosen to have the compartment where the people are always secured to its primary flight system we never separate the capsule from the primary flight system throughout the entire flight. So that means that it's a much simpler way of doing it. And every time you have complexity, you tend to have pathways for risk. So we want to have the least risky way of going to space. And really, that's what we've been very focused on in the design, not only of the capsule and the whole system itself, but also in the whole operations as well. Not to mention our team is just unbelievable. I mean, I could go on forever about our incredible team.
0: Yeah, before we move on, actually, really quick, because it is kind of special. I mean, you have the guy that developed the retrieval system for spacex you have material science people who have a huge amount of experience who are some of the people just real quick that are on the bench that you just couldn't imagine doing it without
2: yeah well so let me first of all talk a minute about my co-founder and co-ceo tyran McCallum.
0: of course yeah and your husband
2: so he and i've been on this journey together for over 30 years he was one of the people in the biosphere Uh, with me. And, you know, we've been on something of a parallel path together. We co-founded a company called Paragon Space Development Corporation, which today has technologies on every human spacecraft in operation in America, and soon going to the moon, which is super exciting.
0: The one on its way while we speak or a future mission?
2: Uh, So it's on Artemis. Artemis. Uh, We have a lot of technology on on Orion, uh, which is really exciting, right? And we worked with Elon before he even started SpaceX. So we've been kicking around this industry a long time. So human spaceflight is in our bones. And then we also took Alan Eustace up, a then Google executive, to break the Red Bull Stratos jump record. You probably saw that in the news uh, a decade ago now. And two years later, we broke that record. You wouldn't have heard about it because we didn't want it in the press. But it was a very exciting thing to do because it really helped us along the way, right? It's a, it's a space balloon where we take Alan up in a spacesuit under a space balloon to 136,000 feet. We intentionally dropped him. He free fell for five minutes and all the rest of it and, and became the highest flying human under a space balloon. We have the best balloon manufacturing person in the world bar none. And she has designed and built lead teams that have designed and built all the large balloons that NASA has flown. And then on our experience team side, we even have the guys from Red Bull Stratos who stood up the media house and broke the internet with the Stratos jump. So on on both sides of the house, we've got just an outstanding team.
1: Just to go back to where we began with the slow part of this conversation, I did want to return to the 12 miles per hour fact of what you do, because I think in terms of the experience, that actually has a lot to do with it. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit to this takeoff, this duration of flight and that 12 mile per hour speed.
2: The whole flight is approximately six hours long. So it takes you roughly two hours to get up to space Gonna have you up there approximately two hours and then another two hours coming back down. The thing that we've thought a lot about is how do you get somebody into that mindset to where they're really open to absorb this incredible experience of seeing our planet in space? And and when you again talk to astronauts, they'll talk about being relaxed, sitting in the window. Sort of relaxing and just taking it all in. And that's what this experience affords because the 12 miles an hour, it's not just slow, it is completely smooth. So when you think about a rocket launch, you think of flames and, you know, that loud sound. Oh, this is the opposite. It is completely silent except for people cheering as it's launching. That's the sound you hear. And completely graceful as it just rises up off of the ground.
1: It strikes me that it's like the equivalent of watching like Norway's slow TV versus watching Fox News. It's like, you know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a funny analogy.
1: Slow, graceful entertainment versus something that's like hard charging and uh, in your face.
2: Yeah, I think it's still going to be incredibly exciting for people. I mean, exhilarating. Because you're going to space. I mean, how incredible is that? Surreal. Right? Are
0: you going to be on the first flight?
2: Okay, so the very first human flight will be an engineering test flight. And as much as I would like to fight my way onto the capsule, probably it's going to have to be some of our test engineers. However... I definitely plan on going on a flight very soon thereafter. Oh yeah. You're not going to keep me off it. Absolutely. 110%.
1: Tell us a bit more about this capsule. What's the design and, and is this thing going to be comfortable? I mean, you described it as a lounge, so.
2: You know, one of the things that's super interesting is that almost half our tickets have been sold as full capsules, meaning eight people wanting to go together, which means this is a shared experience. People want to go to space to share this experience with each other. And then also, given today's world, they want to share it with people back on Earth whilst they're on their flight. So the Space Lounge is set up to enable that. So we actually did, I think it was like 110, I forget the exact number, but over 100 mock-ups where we set up things and sat around and kind of experienced what it would be like. And I initially thought, oh, this is all about the view. We're going to have a seat sitting in front of the window so that everybody can look out. Isn't that what it's all about? And then suddenly you realize that makes it into this very solitary experience because you're kind of looking over your shoulder to look at the person next to you. So we flipped it around. So now you've got these two semicircles. So you've got these Two groups of four of people can chat. The seats are going to be incredibly comfortable. There is a bar on board where you will be able to sort of pre-order what you want to take with you to space along with with food uh, that we're going to be serving during the flight. There'll be ways for you to have your own playlist. I mean, what would you guys want to listen to whilst you're seeing Earth in space for the first time?
0: Neil's from... Are of a part, something uplifting. Right? (laughs) No, I mean, it's so interesting that you've also thought about Wi-Fi, like this idea of connection during the flight. How are you thinking about the sort of back and forth with the communication with Earth during that time? Do you want people to be fully experienced or do you want them to
1: be kind of in two places? Will there be Super Bowl parties on the capsule? I mean, is that... (laughs) Well, more like,
0: you know, do do you want people Instagramming? It's like being in the museum and taking pictures of the paintings rather than looking at them.
2: Yeah, it's so true, right? So I went to an Artemis launch event and uh, we were standing there. And just before we were going to launch, which it didn't on that particular day, somebody came on the loudspeaker and said, hey guys, remember, this is history in the making, watch it with your own eyes, not through your camera. So the way we think about it is, look, everybody wants to take a picture. We're even going to show people how to take a really good picture in space because the lighting is very different than down here. We're gonna have the entire capsule with, cameras around it though, so that we get really awesome images for everybody as well. But I agree, I think there's gonna be periods of time where we're gonna wanna, oops, sorry, you can't reach us because we want you to really be focused on this experience here now. So there's a lot of work that we still have to do to really curate this experience for people without it feeling curated. And also people want different things.
1: Yeah, like space yoga. Will there be space yoga?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Completely. Yes. (laughs) So there's all of that, right? I mean, people want to have, you know, dining experience in space. They want to have musicians go with them to space or an astronaut go with them to space. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can do with this because it's very customizable, which is also great. So uh, we're just getting into that part of our development of really fleshing out what the full experience is going to be, including the few days leading up to the flight. You don't really need training, but I think we're going to want people to be really prepared.
0: So I also wanted to ask a bit about the environmental impact, because I know you're thinking about sustainability and impact throughout the line. Where does the hydrogen come from? How are you thinking about carbon offsets? How are you thinking about it all the way through?
2: Yeah, so we are in the lucky situation that we have a zero emissions spacecraft to start with.
0: Which is insane.
2: It's epic. Particularly for Tabor and me, sort of this whole sustainability part is in our DNA now. Honestly, because of our experience in the biosphere. You know, without that, I don't know that we would have onboarded it and absorbed that in such a real and internalized way. But we have. And so it's incredibly important for us that it is a sustainable effort. Also, frankly, I think it's incredibly important because look, we're taking people up so that they have this mind blowing and mind expanding experience of sort of in a way bonding with our planet, right? But if we're doing it in a way that is making things worse, that's not really awesome. So, our castle is zero emissions, it is carbon neutral, and we also operate the company as a carbon neutral business. So, We of course have to use carbon offsets. We use certified carbon offsets. We do what we can to reduce the carbon footprint of the company itself. Last year we offset it with a company called Cool Effects and we do a lot in marine environment. I I love blue carbon. Blue carbon is just great. It's really coming. We gotta really do what we can not only for our shorelines with mangroves, but, you know, for our oceans. So I think it's hugely important. Um, So we did mangroves last year. What I love, if you do the right carbon offsets, you also have sort of multiple things that you're helping, right? So with the mangroves, obviously you're offsetting the carbon, but you're also helping the coastline. You're helping the fish with uh, having uh, nesting areas, not nesting, you don't nest if you're a fish, but you know what I mean, little baby fishing fisheries.
0: Well, you're doing like resiliency plus carbon capture at the same time.
2: Yes, exactly, that's exactly. You said it much better.
0: <laughs> this this uh, duality of purpose thing is seems to be in your company in many ways. I mean, everything is doing multiple jobs at the same time, which is what makes it such kind of a narrative thing. I actually wasn't gonna ask this question, but I decided to just now, what would you say to these critics? I mean, it's, it's dying down a bit, but what, what would you say to the critics of space tourism, space travel as a wasted resource? I'm curious what you think of it.
2: So I think of it as a little bit like when aviation first started. Remember, we're at the very, very beginning of a new industry. And when commercial aviation started, people were like, what are we going to use airplanes for, for heaven's sake? Well, now look, aviation touches in some way or another, almost every human on this planet. We couldn't imagine then how we were going to use aviation. And the same is true for space travel. I think Because we're so early, all we can think about at the moment is, oh, we're just taking people up and bringing them back. No, this is going to change humanity. It just is. From our selfish point of view, some of this early stage stuff that we're doing in this industry helps change the way people think about space travel and about our planet. But if you look into the future, we are going to have people on moon and Mars and beyond we really are entering into like little baby steps into a Star Trek future in some ways. And that is going to change everything for us.
1: I wanted to ask you about just the simple act of looking and specifically looking at and looking from space. The James Webb telescope images released this year have been extraordinary, whether it's the Jupiter images or the deepest infrared image of the universe yet. I mean, these are incredible pictures. And you've been thinking about this kind of looking for a long time and been deep in this world, this space space, I guess we could call it, and conversation. What impact do you think these images or this visual perspective has on the human psyche, both short term and long? And these sort of images, what's your response to them? How are you thinking about all of this?
2: Yeah, so I mean, it's. Let's go back to one of the most downloaded images in history, which was taken on December the 24th by Apollo 8, right? Which was sometimes called Earthrise. It changed the way we thought about ourselves as a species living on planet Earth. That was a two-dimensional image of planet Earth with some of the moon in the foreground, the Earth in the background, And then later full images of the earth, the blue marble, and that really helped foment the environmental movement in many ways. It allowed us to hold a mirror up to ourselves that we really can't get in any other way. And then if you turn around and look out into deep space, the Hubble telescope was incredible. Uh, astronaut Jeff Hoffman, who's on our team, you know, he's one of the reasons that we have those images because he was out there on, AVA, on EVA, essentially putting the, metaphorically putting the glasses on Hubble so he could see. And those images blew our minds. It gives us a view into the unknown that allows us to imagine I think it also helps us think about the fact that we as a species can do these incredible things. I mean, we're looking deep back into time. It's not just space, we're looking back in time. I mean, it's just mind blowing. It's amazing what we're doing. And so not only does it spark imagination about what an individual can do, I think is incredibly uplifting for us as a species to think, wow, if we just set our minds to it, look what we can accomplish.
0: So it's obviously hard to predict how technologies like this are going to ultimately be used, like you were just talking about. And, but I am curious, what does the future space travel look like to you? Like if you were to shoot ahead, say hundred years, this is the very beginning. What do you hope it all becomes? What is your sort of sci-fi vision of this future that starts here with hydrogen balloons?
2: So you have to understand that I totally am a sci-fi nut. So I love sci-fi.
0: You grew up on the Isle of Wight,
2: right? (laughs) I did grow up on the Isle of Wight sailing. Well, but actually what's pertinent about that is when you're out at sea sailing and you're far from land and you don't see any land, you really do get that we live on a planet because you know that all of this ocean is connected which is very difficult to get on land. You don't really get that perspective on land. So when I look into the future, I mean, it's certainly not a projection or a prediction of what's gonna happen, but we are going to go to asteroids and find materials that benefit us here on earth, find materials that help us offshore some of the things that we perhaps don't wanna actually do here on Earth, but do somewhere else and make planet Earth the oasis that it is, right? And that's sort of some of the vision, right? Is that that you offshore some of the stuff that we just don't wanna do here. And and I think that's, that's a powerful vision for the future. We also have the opportunity to create incredible living systems on other planets. Right. I mean, you know, what we did with Biosphere 2 was a very early version of the kind of thing that we could do on Moon and Mars, where people are living in these really lush, you know, very sort of Gerard O'Neill space castle type environments, but living both in space and on another planet. That's where we're headed. How long is going to take us to get there? Who knows? I thought we'd be on Mars by now.
0: So did Elon. He thought it would take 10 years, right? But the other thing that relates closer to what you're making is, do you see a future in which it's not going to be an exorbitant sum to get up there and that school children will be taking field trips to space and things like that?
2: Yes, I definitely, definitely hope for that day to come sooner than later. So we're already getting people involved on a variety of levels who otherwise wouldn't necessarily be able to go themselves. But even if they can't go, we want them to get involved, right? So from the flights itself, we're involving artists and of course leaders, but artists of all kinds, artists writ large, right? Scientists, that's an obvious one, of course. But what is really cool is that we're already able to include and have already included kids in what we're doing. So we are going to be doing a whole bunch of uncrewed flights. And on our first test flight that we did last year, we had a competition for high school kids for science experiments that we would fly. So we flew a couple of teams experiments to the edge of space, which was really awesome. I mean, God, the video of these kids finding out that they were gonna have their experiment going to space was priceless. It it makes it all worth it. And then we also, so we, I'm a strong believer in STEAM. So we also involved kids of all ages with art projects that were flown. And then we also actually had professional artists turn our capsule simulator into a, a work of art, which was really fun. So, we really believe in involving people at every level of this from so many different backgrounds because we want them to ex- take advantage of this incredible opportunity, but experience it in different ways and then communicate it in different ways. Right when we saw William Shatner go up, and the way he communicated his experience was unlike anything we'd heard anybody else talk about because he came from such a different background. So now imagine we just got so many different kinds of people going. It's going to be incredible.
0: Yeah, the storytelling is going to be amazing. Jane, thank you so much for spending time with us today and for your incredible work. We'll be watching it and we're very excited about this.
2: Thank you. I hope to see you in space one day.
0: Thanks to our episode sponsor, the Japanese luxury timepiece manufacturer, Grand Seiko which raises the pure essentials of watchmaking to the level of art. You can learn more about the company at www.grand-seiko.com. And thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At a Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for the weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, and Johnny Simon.